Acts 17. Acts 17, verses 15 through 34 is our scripture reading this evening. May God bless his word. Acts 17, 15. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Others some, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine, whereof thou speakest, is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all thanks, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then, as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day into which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from them. Albeit, certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius, their Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thus far, the reading of sacred scripture. Dear church family, in these uh, post-resurrection pre-ascension weeks, I want to bring you a post-resurrection message on Acts 17, verse 31. We'll be focusing almost exclusively on this verse tonight. Acts 17, verse 31. Because he hath appointed a day 
God hath appointed a day into which He, Jesus, will judge the world in righteousness, by, in which God will judge the world in righteousness, by that man, Jesus, whom He hath ordained. Whereof He hath given assurance unto all men, in that He hath raised Him from the dead. So with God's help, I want to speak with you about the final judgment. God's right to it, to do it. First, secondly, Christ's exercise of it, how Christ will implement it. And third, our assurance of it, in that He was raised from the dead. The final judgment, God's right to it, Christ's exercise of it, our assurance of it. This text tonight is part of an address that Paul delivered, as you heard read to you, on Mars Hill, a place where the educated of Athens often gathered to debate various truths, especially philosophical and theological truth. Their questions often pertain to life and death and time and eternity. Athens was Greece's most renowned city for learning and for philosophy. And even though Greece had been conquered by the Romans prior to New Testament times, Athens was still famous in Paul's day as a place where intellectuals debated questions of truth. When's evil? Uh, What is life? What is eternity? A host of questions. And so when Paul came to Athens and began to preach a crucified, resurrected Christ, many philosophers and intellectuals gathered around him to hear his strange teaching. Especially the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers desired to hear what Paul was teaching. Verses 19 through 21 enlighten us there. And they they ask him, "May, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? Now, Paul's speech is different in style here in Acts 17 from his other addresses. He's speaking in a more intellectual way to the common people. A more philosophical style. A style of profound reasoning. But there's no change in the essence of what Paul is teaching about the gospel in his statements on Mars Hill. He gets to the same point. A crucified and exalted Savior is the living God whom you need to know to live in comfort and to die in peace. Paul's change of style simply illustrates profoundly his own truth that he's willing to become all things to all men, that by all means he might save some, but only by the truth as it is in Jesus. So (coughs) he begins by reasoning with them about the foolishness of worshiping idols and the necessity of worshiping the true and the living God. And then, after not really mocking them, but just kind of challenging them and exposing them that they had talked about the unknown God, he tells them, I I, I know the God you need to know. The God who has a way of salvation in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that God now commands all men everywhere to repent. And then he reinforces this argument by declaring that everyone, not just Jesus rose from the dead, but everyone will rise from the dead and everyone will be judged by this same Jesus who is already risen. And then he argues in verse 31 that the very resurrection of Jesus as the forerunner of our resurrection is an argument by which we know 
that we will all be judged by the same Jesus on the great day of days. And what he does is he sets before us the divine right to this judgment and how something of how Jesus will do it and how we can be assured that we too will be judged. This is a solemn text. An important one. One that draws a straight line from the living, resurrected, real Jesus to the real, final judgment on the great day. And what Paul is implying here, first of all, is that God has a right to judge us openly, publicly. He's our creator, our provider, our absolute ruler, our dispenser of all things. He governs the natural world, the universe of sun and moon and stars. He governs the moral world, angels and men. Nothing falls outside of his purview, as you heard this morning from Psalm 139. He's a sovereign Lord of all. He's intimately involved in all. And to his moral creatures, God has given us his law. He gave to Adam the ability to obey that law. He has every right as our creator to give us laws. Every right to be our supreme judge, to judge us by the laws he has given is every right to say in Galatians 3 verse 10 that cursed is he who does not obey every law he has given to do them. As a supreme judge of the universe and the souls of men, God has the right to judge righteously according to his own character. And no one can reverse his judgments. No one can appeal his judgments. There's no higher court of appeal. Jesus is the supreme court of the universe. Judgments of men are often wrong. We often judge by the outward appearance. There are often hidden and sinful motives in our judgment. But the Lord penetrates the heart. Jesus knows what is in the heart of man. Jesus has the right to judge us because He knows us through and through better than we know ourselves. His judgment is inevitable. That's what Paul is saying. For He's the omnipotent one. The omnificence one, as you heard this morning. The omniscient. We can refuse to submit to His law. But our rebellion cannot withdraw us from God's right of judgment to judge you and me on the great final day. All that we are, we owe to Him. In Him we live and move and have our being, Paul says on Mars Hill, both naturally and spiritually. And without having a spiritual being in Him, we will perish. But when we perish... We will do so accountably, responsibly, because we are responsible and accountable to God for everything. You see, no one can control God or avoid His final judgment. The strongest creatures, the angels, tried it and they failed miserably. God cast them out of heaven. Job 9 verse 4 says, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who hath ever hardened himself against the Lord and prospered? It's a rhetorical question. The Bible doesn't have to say, no one. The answer is obvious. No one. And so God enters into judgment individually with every one of us. And that begins already in our conscience here in this life. But it also occurs at our death. The moment we die, we have a unilateral appointment with God. There's no postponement. There's no escape. No bail. No parole. The soul, Ecclesiastes says, 
returns to God immediately and is judged immediately. Immediately when a person dies. Immediately when you one day will die and me. We will be sensible of the presence of God. Either a favorable presence in Christ or the presence of a condemning judge who will cast us away. This is what we call the intermediate state. That is, the state of man between this life and the eternal life to come when Jesus will come in the clouds. The Bible doesn't speak very much about the intermediate state because in God's mind, it's just a short blink of an eye, even if it's thousands of years. A thousand years are as one day to God. Our life is but like a little part of one day in the mind of God. Our entire life and our entire destiny is related to how we spend this little part of one day compared to the infinitude of never, never, never ending eternity. And yet, the Bible speaks of another judgment. Not just the judgment of our conscience. Not just the judgment that we will know in the twinkling of an eye when we die. But the Bible speaks of a full judgment of a soul and body judgment in the great day when Christ comes on the cloud. A day of solemn, public judgment. Our text says, because He hath appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man, Jesus, whom He hath ordained. This is a solemn doctrine. The Old Testament spoke of it now and then. Psalm 96, 13. The Lord cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with His truth. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. But it's especially in the New Testament that God repeatedly declares That it's only reasonable that He, the great and holy God, should manifest His dominion over all the inhabitants of the earth by bringing them all together before Him in a final public judgment. Those who have denied Him, those who have openly opposed His authority or deceptively have claimed to have known Him when they did not, together with all His people, shall be brought before the tribunal of God. And this will be a day like none other. A public nature of judgment will permeate this day to make it the most glorious display of the justice of God that was ever made. Our text says, God will judge the world In righteousness. In righteousness. It will be eternally fulfilled. What we read in Revelation 19, 1 and 2. After these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments. You see, in that day, God will publicly correct all the confusion, the disarray, the irregularity we brought into this world by our sin. This world, which seems blanketed everywhere, covered everywhere with our pride, our covetousness, our sinful passions, will be purged. And God will bring everyone and everything into judgment. The righteous cause will be pleaded and vindicated. The wicked cause will receive its due disgrace and punishment. And that day, God will honor His people in the most public manner before all the holy angels and all mankind 
and before the devils and all those who hated and persecuted them. His people will be publicly vindicated. And the wicked, God will expose all their wickedness before the entire assembly. And bring them to open shame. And manifest His just abhorrence of them. You see, that's the point of Paul. God will not only do this, but God has a right to do this. Because in Him we live and move and have our being. And then here's the amazing thing. God will do all this by the man whom He has ordained. The man who was hanging naked on the cross. The man who was crawling on the ground as a worm and no man. The Son of Man. The Son of God. Who's been raised from the dead. Because He's raised and vindicated by God. To sit at God's right hand. God will install His Son as the great judge in that glorious day. And that leads us to our second thought then. Why and how will that judgment go? Why, why does the Son of God sit on the throne of judgment? Why not the Father? Why not the Holy Spirit? Now, we don't know all the reasons, of course, because we're not God. But the Bible does reveal some of them, and so does Paul. And let me just mention four of them quickly to you. Why it's so fitting that Jesus, the resurrected Lord of glory, that the Father would give Him the judgment, the final, glorious, sovereign judgment into the hands of His Son. First of all, it's fitting. It's fitting because He lived in our human nature. He knew our temptations. He faced our infirmities. And so John 5, 27 says, The Father hath given Him, that is the Son, authority to execute judgment also, because He is the Son of Man. Because He is the Son of Man. Because He can identify with what we go through. It's fitting that every eye shall see Him as the rightful judge. Jonathan Edwards said of this something beautiful. He said, How justly will they be condemned by Him whose salvation they have rejected, whose blood they have despised, whose many calls they have refused, and whom they have pierced with their sins. And then they shall cry out, How often He knocked at the door of my heart under the preaching of the Gospel. But oh, too late, too late. He could have been my Savior, but now He is my incensed. Judge. It's fitting that he be your judge and mine because he's the Son of Man. Secondly, he earned the right to be our supreme judge as a promised and suitable reward for his sufferings. Christ was once arrayed before the judgment seat of men, he was treated despicably by unjust judges. By Pilate and Herod. He was mocked and spat upon, condemned and crucified to earn the right of this last great step of his exaltation that he would come to judge the living and the dead. And Jesus himself hints at that when he says in Matthew 26, 64, Thou hast said, saying this to Pilate, Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Thirdly, he who was appointed king of the church must rule till he puts all his enemies under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15 says, he must be judged, not only of his people, but also of his enemies. Then cometh the end, verses 24, 25, 
of 1 Corinthians 15. Then cometh the end, when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And fourth, it's necessary for him to be the judge. To place the capstone, the capstone on all his work of redemption. He must be a complete redeemer. He must not only be our righteousness on the cross and apply it from heaven, but he also must bring it home to our hearts and to our lives and lead us to be with him where he is forever in everlasting glorification. He does a complete work. He doesn't only convert us and give us new hearts, boys and girls, and and convict us of sin and and lead us to Christ and give us faith to believe in Him and justify us and sanctify us and give us perseverance and assurance. No, He leads us all the way home to glorify us to be with Him forever. He raises the saints from the dead. He acquits them in soul and body publicly by His blood. It's all his task as a redeemer. He's the judge for the living church. And you know, there's something wonderfully comforting about that. The God you love, dear child of God, the Jesus you love, is your judge. He's your all in all. Also your judge. He who suffered and died for you. He who persevered for you to the end is your judge. He who gave his blood for you is your judge. That's why I love, I love question 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What comfort is it to you that Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead? Answer, that in all my sorrows and persecutions... With uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. He's got every right to this. He's the suitable judge. He's the perfect judge. He's the well-qualified judge. He's the unchangeable judge. He's an altogether lovely judge. So how will this happen? How will it happen? Well, the Bible says a lot about it, actually. If you piece together all the texts, we don't know everything about it, but we do know a lot A lot more than most people realize. The Bible says Christ will come in glory. Glory means weightiness. It will be, it will be public coming, weighty coming, valuable coming. In the glory, in one place it says, of the Father. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father. In another place it says, in His own glory. The King of Kings shall come in His glory. John says, And yet another place, he shall come in the glory of the angels and all the holy angels with him. Ten thousands times ten thousand. Jonathan Edwards gets bold here and he says, heaven for a time will be deserted of its inhabitants. (laughs) It will be coming with the souls of the redeemed made perfect. He'll be coming with 10,000 times 10,000. This will be a monumental coming, a victorious coming, a sky-rending coming with the sound of a trump. It will be a glorious day when He comes. And He'll come suddenly, the Bible says, unexpectedly. With the sound of the last trump, he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trump. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And then we're told the dead shall arise, and the earth and sea shall give up the dead that are in them. 
There'll be a great movement over all the earth. Bodies from graves will stand erect. Bodies that have been perished in the sea. Bodies that have been martyred and eaten by wild animals and cremated and, and never found by loved ones. All kinds of bodies will come together and be raised from the dead. The godly and the ungodly. And the souls of all those already dead shall re-enter their bodies again and be reunited, never to be separated again. John says in Revelation, For the wicked, death and hell shall deliver up the dead that were in them. And for the righteous, their souls shall descend from heaven together with Christ and the angels. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, God will bring with Him. Their bodies shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye and fashioned like unto the glorious body of Jesus. And the redeemed, among the redeemed, there shall be no, no lame persons like Mephibosheth. He will receive a whole body. There shall be no special needs person with infirmities or handicaps. They shall all, in the twinkling of an eye, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. And we shall have perfect bodies and perfect souls to serve a perfect God in a perfect heaven forever. If we're believers, true believers. And then we will all stand before the judge. As death leaves us, so the judgment day will find us. Where the tree falls, there it shall lie, the Bible says. Be it to the north or be it to the south. The unconverted will gather on the left hand of Christ and they will cry to the mountains to fall on them and to hide them from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And believers will be on the right side. Gathered like sheep by their shepherd. And their joy will, as it were, give them wings to carry their souls into their bodies. They will, with ecstasies and raptures of delight, says Jonathan Edwards, meet their friend and Savior, come into His presence, and stand at His right hand. And then the judgment shall happen. The strong in faith shall be judged. The weak in faith shall be judged. The strong and weak in the world shall be judged. The converted and unconverted shall be judged. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. Every eye shall be opened. And everyone shall be judged according to the measure of light that has been afforded them. And the measure of privilege given to them. We shall have to render an account of every privilege It was granted to us, said J.C. Ryle, in every ray of light that we have enjoyed. And then at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in that vast multitude of billions and billions and billions of people. And every tongue shall confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a day. What a moment. No one too wealthy to be above judgment. No one too poor to escape judgment. The omniscient Christ cannot be deceived. The just Christ cannot be avoided. It's an inevitable judgment. And in that judgment, the Bible speaks of it like books. There are no physical books in heaven, of course. But it's like books going open. And for the unsaved, we read of four books. The book of remembrance. The book of remembrance, number one. All our sins, our secret sins are printed, as it were, in heaven's book. And Christ will read them aloud before the whole world. But we dared not to tell others. What we dared to minimize and make light of and forget in this life will be remembered and exposed. All our pride. All our unbelief. All our hatred, all our sins of commission, all our sins of omission, 
It'll all be public. Public. And secondly, we read of the book of Providence. All God's goodness will, it should have led us to repentance. For the ungodly, it will condemn them because it will all have led only to hardness. And then for those who've been exposed to Scripture, that book will go open. Both the law and the gospel. For as many as have sinned without the law shall perish without the law. And as many have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. The Bible says. And Paul says of the book of the gospel that will go open. In that day God shall judge the secrets of many by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And the book of conscience will go open. Which will be worse than a thousand witnesses. And upon a thousand questions. We will have no answer. But for God's people. Different books will go open. Or the same books. But they will be covered with the blood of the Lamb. The book of remembrance will go open. Will God's people's sins be remembered on that day? Some old divines argue yes. Some argue no. The simple answer is, if they are mentioned at all, it will only be to magnify the power of the grace of God in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ so that all glory will be given to God. And the book of the life and the Lamb will go open. And their names will be written in that book. Ephesians 1 says, According as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. And no book will condemn them. The book of the law? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. The book of the gospel? The book of conscience, there is now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Dear believer, every page of every book that would ordinarily condemn you because you are a sinner, and you're a sinner still, will be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, and written across that page will be paid in full. And you will escape completely the wrath of the Lamb, because you will be taken up in that blood, washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. And so the judgment will be public. And yet every man will take his turn, every woman, every boy, every girl, take his turn, her turn, to stand alone before the judge. Everyone will be judged in soul and body. We will be judged by what we've done with the eyes God has given us, with the ears He's given us, with our hands, with our feet, with our soul. No one will escape it. No one will escape it. Paul says here in our text, it will be a righteous judgment. God will judge in righteousness. And He will judge also according to our works. And that doesn't deny that we get into heaven by free grace. Because when we are justified in Christ, we will be sanctified in Christ. And our works will reveal that we have been born again. The fruit will be there. Five times, the New Testament says, that we will be judged by our works. Not because our works are meritorious, but because our works reflect the saving work of the everlasting judge. And as Christ engaged in this judgment, it will have six characteristics, at least, probably many more. Number one, it will be a perfect and minute judgment. Perfect and minute. Every detail will be known. Let every man prove his own work. Galatians 6 verse 4. Number two, it will be a searching, pondering judgment. I, the Lord, search the heart and try the reins. In Proverbs, we read three times that God ponders the ways of men. God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. 
And third, it will be an impartial judgment. No one in hell will be able to say, Lord, thy judgment was not fair. No one in hell will say, I don't deserve to be here. And no one in heaven will say, I deserve to be here. It's all because of the blood of the Lamb. It's all because of the work of this great judge. And four, it's a near judgment. A near judgment. The judge stands at the door sooner than we think. You've got to be prepared now. Mary Carlson this week took a sudden turn for the worse. What if she had not been prepared? The family would be in total misery right now. Are you prepared now? If it were to happen to you this week, suddenly, you're at death's door. Five, it will be a final judgment. No change, no reversal, no parole, no intermission. And six, it will be an executed judgment. These shall all go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. What a glorious day that shall be. Happy day for the believer to enter into heaven, to enter into perfect salvation, salvation from Satan, from the from world, from my old nature, from, from all sin, from All tears and pain and sorrow and night and death and dying and temptation and temptation to be tempted and curse. All done away. And then to enter into perfect activities of praise and glory and worship and service of God and exercise of authority and eternal communion with the saints and angels and above all, supreme joy in supreme communion with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Joy, enjoy knowing Him and seeing Him, gazing upon Him, loving Him and praising Him. And that all in perfect surroundings, a perfect heaven, a perfect world of love, with perfect mansions, centered in a perfect God, with perfect light and perfect feasting and perfect holiness. What a day. It shall be to be with Christ forever. You know, Martin Luther said this, I would not give one moment of heaven for all the joy and riches of the world, even if it lasted for thousands and thousands of years. Do you mean that, Martin Luther? For one second in heaven? You'd have more joy than you get if you live for thousands and thousands of years on earth? Yes. Yes. Heaven is a perfect world of love with Christ at the center. And that will be everything. Well, the ungodly, it will be just the opposite. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, says this same Paul, We persuade men. My friend, as death leaves you, judgment will find you. And as judgment finds you, eternity will open up its arms to hold you and never release you. There's no exit from hell. Every building on this earth, to to get up to code just about, especially in our country, has exit signs. I'm looking at an exit sign right now. But there's no exit signs in hell. There's no way out of hell. All good is walled into heaven, but all evil is walled into hell. There's no way of escape. No rocks or mountains to fall on and be destroyed. Hell is essentially dying, ever dying, but never dead. Ever to be without the favor of God. To be utterly alone with no friendship, no communion with anyone. Forsaken of God, forsaken of men, even forsaken by the devils. There'll be no personal relationships in hell. Just as heaven of heavens is communion with God. So the hell of hell is to be forsaken of God. And oh, how tragic in that day if we tried to enter into heaven by any other way than the blood of Jesus. We will hear from the judge, bind this sinner hand and foot 
and take him away and cast him into utter darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The greater Joseph, the line out of the tribe of Judah, shall cast with holy indignation the unsaved who have not repented, who have not believed in Christ alone for salvation, who have not surrendered to His gospel terms into the bottomless pit. One of the old Puritans said, Nebuchadnezzar's burning fiery furnace would be regarded as ice in the bottom of hell. Terrible, terrible it shall be to fall into the hands of a living God unprepared. And the hell of hell will be for those who've rejected all their lifetime the gospel offered to them. Jesus says the remembrance of that will be like a never-dying worm in their conscience, gnawing, gnawing, gnawing away in pain and agony in hell. You don't want to go there. And there's one way of escape. That's through Him who's been raised from the dead, who will be the judge of heaven, who suffered and died and invites every single sinner who hears the gospel to come unto me and to repent and believe in Christ alone by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And he says, I will turn no one away. Ever. And so in the great day, if you get turned away, it's because you will have spurned the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do we know this is all true? How can we be sure of it? Paul concludes, whereof He has given assurance of this unto all men in that He has raised Jesus from the dead. Resurrection is our assurance that the judgment day will happen. The resurrection of Jesus turned everything around for His disciples, for the validation of Christianity, and it gives to the people of God Assurance about many, many, well, all, actually, aspects of the Christian life. Luke 18.33 teaches us that it gives us assurance about His person and His mission. Romans 4.25 teaches us that it gives us assurance that He's made satisfaction for sin. And it's an assurance of our justification. Romans 8, 33, 34 says that resurrection gives us assurance that nothing shall be laid against the charge of God's elect. But Acts 17, 31, our text tonight, gives us assurance, Paul says, that Christ will judge the world. And that judgment will be true, it will be righteous, and it will be sure. Now, what does that do for you, dear believer? Well, it does a lot for you. It assures you, first of all, of your own resurrection. Your soul will be reunited one day with your body. And you will declare the Son of God to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness. Because He was resurrected from the dead to raise you from the dead, to be with Him forever. And so just as Jesus was persecuted and abused, but now greatly rewarded, so you will be delivered from all evil and will be greatly rewarded with the reward of grace and everlasting marriage with the perfect bridegroom in glory. Secondly, 
It's your assurance that all things will be set right one day. All things will be set right one day. God's day of reckoning will glorify His justice and righteousness. And all that is crooked will be set straight. You know, this afternoon, when we just came home, I checked my messages to see if there was a, anything on my answering machine. And there was a brother who called me. He said he was wrestling all afternoon with this text from Psalm 103. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. I haven't had a chance to call him back yet. But what he said in the phone was this. So many are oppressed. What about the babies that are killed? What about people that are abused? What about nations that are poor? How can the Lord execute righteous and judgment for all that are oppressed? Well, I'm going to call him tomorrow. I'm going to tell him, here's the answer. Here's the answer. God makes everything right in the end. Though Satan will be your accuser lifelong, Christ will be your advocate. And he will straighten out all that was crooked in the great day. He will prove all your discouraging fears to be false. All those Asaph-like fears that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer will be turned around. And God will show that the rich man in hell will be tormented, but Lazarus will be exalted. What a change. The just God reigns in heaven. The ungodly shall be tormented. The godly shall be vindicated. Everything shall be made right. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Don't you do that here in this life. You have the assurance because this man was risen from the dead, says Paul. You know, Asaph was troubled about this deeply in Psalm 73 until he says, I came into the sanctuary of God and I saw the end of the wicked. Then it all turned around and he said, it is good for me to draw nigh to God. God will make all things right. God will make all things well. Thomas Watson put it this way. John the Baptist's head in a charger is a common dish nowadays. It is ordinary to bring in a saint beheaded of his good name. But at the day of judgment, Christ will unload his people from all their injuries. He will vindicate them through his resurrection power. Dear child of God, in the resurrection of Jesus, you have your guarantee that one day in the final judgment, all your trials will be over. There will surely be an end, and thy expectation shall not be cut off. God will make it all right and fair and true and good through His ultimate judge, the Lord Jesus. But to you who are unsaved, Christ is also your assurance that you will be raised from the dead that it will be impossible not to meet Him, that you cannot escape from Him forever. The same Christ who arose from the dead will raise you from the dead. And He's telling you one more time while you're alive, He doesn't ask you to repent. He doesn't invite you to repent only. But Paul says, verse 30, He commands you. He commands you to repent. The times of ignorance God winked at. When you're not ignorant. You've heard the gospel, many of you, all your life. But He now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because He has appointed this day. This day of judgment. And you know that this day is coming because Jesus is raised from the dead. J.C. Ryle said the saddest road to hell is that which runs under the pulpit, past an open Bible, and through the midst of warnings and invitations. Soon it will be too late. 
soon it will be too late to repent. Too late, too late to believe the gospel. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. Revelation 22. You know, hell is a place that will house no unbelievers. Just believers who believe too late. Because every knee shall bow. Every lip Every tongue shall confess He is Lord. But across the gates of hell will be written these two words, too late. Too late. Oh, how the judgment day and eternity ought to make us realize we are all, all of us, you too, boys and girls, just one heartbeat away from eternity. We all ought to be praying like Jonathan Edwards was, did when he was 13 years old. Oh God, stamp eternity on my eyes. And I would say, stamp it on my hands, stamp it on my feet, stamp it on my heart. Don't live for this life. Be prepared for eternity. Set your house in order. For you shall die and not live. Are you prepared tonight? If you were to die tonight. Oh, you say, but I'm so unworthy. I don't don't think there's any hope for me. I'm, I'm just terribly, terribly unworthy. I'm just a sinner. Well, that's exactly the kind of person Jesus came to save. God says... I commend my love toward you in that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 He doesn't justify the godly. He justifies the ungodly. Oh, you say, but that's presumptuous. It's presumptuous for me to take Him. I'm so afraid to take a Jesus that I, I, I have no right to. I'll tell you what's really presumptuous. What's really presumptuous is to go on living without Jesus. What's really presumptuous is to refuse to believe the testimony God has given about His Son, that He's willing to receive the greatest of sinners. What's really presumptuous is not to believe 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that this is a faithful saying to be received and accepted by all. Even those who are chief sinners. That is presumptions. To refuse to believe that. Oh, you need to settle your account now. Now. In the day of grace. In the time of salvation. Before. You hear it from the lips of Jesus. On the great day. Cast a sinner away. For he would not believe in me. He would not repent. He would not come to me. And now it's too late. My dear unconverted friend, I say to you with all the love of my heart, if you sink one day unwashed into hell, unwashed in the blood of Jesus, It will not be because you were not told that that blood is the only refuge for sinners. And it will not be because you were not invited with every entreaty from this pulpit that could come your way to flee to the Lamb of God. It will only be because of what Jesus said. You would not Believe that you might have eternal life. Turn to Jesus. Throw yourself at His feet. And say, if I perish, I perish. But I perish here. Son of David, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And He will. Amen.
Great God of heaven, oh, may the unsaved hear this cry tonight of the Son of God, inviting, pleading, commanding, urging, come unto me, sinner, just as you are. Lord, use this sermon tonight in its warning, in its alluring, for the conversion of the lost and for the assurance of the saved. Let the post-resurrection Savior do a wondrous work tonight in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.